All right, we are uh, again gathered this evening to uh, stay, uh, be before God and uh, considering the issues and the questions and the needs and the imperatives that we've been looking at. And uh, why don't we uh, at least sing the first line of Amazing Grace together. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. But now I see. Uh, during our meetings, we uh, the main thing that we've been considering is uh, our uh, present day situation, our present uh, day situation concerning the world in which we live, the society in which we live, the civilization we are we're a part of and uh, and we have seen how precious is this first chapter of Paul's uh, letter to the Romans um, in these uh, verses especially from verses 18 through 32 uh, Paul delineates for us an explanation uh, of these four phases uh, that are historically lived through these civilizations that have um, succeeded throughout history. And uh, as they were born, as they grew, as they developed, as they reached their climax, their summit, uh, and then began to fall, began to fall the rise and fall of human civilizations. Uh, why do they fall? Why do they begin to degenerate? Why do they finally collapse? Um, where again, we saw that this is very, um, very much connected to what Paul is talking about here. The first step towards collapse is the abandonment of God, the denial of God. Of course, first Paul establishes the revelation of God, the reality of God, verses 19 and 20. And then 21, he says, even though they knew, they knew the God who revealed himself, uh, they denied him. They would not glorify him. They would not be thankful to him. But they begin to reason. Not only they begin to uh, reject and deny God, but they begin to reason as to how they could remove Him, remove the very thought of Him from their mind, their conscience, and obviously from their society. The disappearing or the, the disappearance of God in man's lives. And so, to be able to do that, men began to fabricate idols. Idols have that very purpose. They serve that function. 
they are meant to obscure, to hide, to come in between human beings and God so that men will no longer contemplate, see, be faced by the reality of God, but he will satisfy his religious needs through the idol, through the idol. Um, so, then we saw, of course, that idolatry leads, idolatry is, is terribly offensive to God. It's an insult to God. It identifies uh, God with that which is vile, as Paul says, is corrupted. And so, because God is denied, and because God is uh, offended by man's idolatry, idols, um, God begins to abandon uh, human society to... Uh, human beings to their own passions, to their desires, evil passions. And Paul repeats that, verse 24, verse 26, verse 28, for three times. uh, As men kept on denying God, God kept on abandoning them, so uh, that they may pursue their vile desires but also receive judgment by these vile desires because these desires are, are evil, are wicked, and they lead to evil, also in terms of destruction. They receive in their own bodies, in their own lives, in our own society, the fruit of such, of such pursuit. Um, and so, of course, the more man denies God, the more men will build idols, the more God will abandon men to their passions, the more humanity will become violent and destructive, and finally, self-destructive. Um, so, what is this is helpful in so many ways, and it's not only helpful in terms of understanding our, our times, the times and the world in which we live, it is also important that we may understand uh, our responsibility. What are we to do and what are we to be, first of all? What are we to be and then what are we to do? And with regards to this, we've been emphasizing this aspect in our Wednesday meetings. With regards to that, we noticed how um, uh, the, the importance of this passage is, is just this. Because it shows which are the four main aspects that characterize our godless and immoral society, it also calls our attention to the fact that these four aspects are the main aspects that characterize our society. And therefore, because we live in the society day after day, they tend to influence us. We tend to be influenced by the environment in which we live. That's, that's natural. <laughs> that's, that's natural. We, we tend to become like our surroundings. Uh, and because the church is not perfect, because it's made up of redeemed sinners, but we still have those inclinations, the world can still get us, can still pull us, can still tempt us. 
can still try to make us turn towards itself and follow these very idols, well, the first thing to do is, if we are conscious of this reality, is how is my culture affecting me individually as a Christian? Uh, concerning my relationship with God, the centrality of God, uh, the glorification of God, the presence of God in my life. What about idols? What are today the major idols that are affirmed in our society and are they affecting me? Are they affecting my family? Are they affecting my church? Are they affecting our churches? Um, what are the moral issues that are highlighted by Paul here? Are they affecting the church? Are they affecting me, us, the church? What about the moral breakdown and the, and the devastation? Um, and so, this is a tremendous exercise. <laughs> this is a tremendous, um, let's say, orientation. It's a text that can give us a tremendous orientation for self-analysis, for church analysis, for the analysis of the whole movement of our churches as they live and, uh, and serve, try to live and serve God in this present day society. Now, uh, we have considered the first part, uh, the denial of God and how that can affect us and how we should respond to that denial, both in our life, as we do not deny but affirm God in our life, as well as how to, to counteract the denial of God by the world with our affirmation of God. I want to make clear one thing that... Of course, the final answer, the final answer will always be what we find in verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. This is the answer. This is the answer. There cannot be any other answer. There cannot be any other argument. Uh, it doesn't matter how philosophical, how deep, or how wide. It doesn't matter. The answer is the gospel. Uh, so obviously the church must remain evangelistic. <laughs> and you know, to remain evangelistic, the gospel is to be preached and reasserted in the pulpit, in, in our prayers, in our life. Uh, the gospel of Christ is not something that we have believed long ago, and then we somehow follow other principles. The gospel remain basics for our daily forgiveness, <laughs> for our daily grace. Not only, but for the, for the whole way in which we understand Christian life. <laughs> the Christian life is completely based on the gospel. So it doesn't matter whether we live in the context of our marriage, or whether we live in the context of our family, or the context of the church, the humility that the gospel uh, that the gospel demands, <laughs> and the service, the, the act of service that the gospel demands, must remain central. We die to ourselves to live for Christ. We die to ourselves, and, and we live for Christ. Why? Because He died for us, and He was risen for us. <laughs>
So the gospel remains foundational to sanctification, to every aspect of our life. And when it comes to the world, the gospel is, must always be, the message that we give. (laughs) The message that we give. And yet, this is not enough. This is not enough. In the sense, as Paul is showing us here, the gospel must be not accommodated, but adapted. Not accommodated, not made easy for others, but accommodated to our present day situation. Let me just give you an example of how Christ um, uh, tailored, perhaps that's the best word, tailored the gospel according to the person he was speaking to. Consider the difference between John 3 and John 4. As Christ spoke to uh, Nicodemus in chapter 3, and he spoke to the Samaritan to the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. The message that he gives is basically the same. They must be saved. (laughs) But to Nicodemus he speaks of the new birth. Because there's something that Nicodemus should know. (laughs) You are the doctor of Israel and don't know this. (laughs) This is all over the scriptures. How come you don't know it? So he was speaking in scripture terms of new birth, of regeneration. Because he was addressing a man that had that background. But when he speaks to the woman at the well, what does he say? Well, here's a well. (laughs) If you continue to draw from this well, the water, it will never satisfy you. But if you drink of the water that I will give you, you shall never be thirsty again. Why? Because he was tailoring his gospel... Uh, changing the terms, changing, uh, let me see, the, the references, the cultural references, so that it may be more easily understood by the person he was speaking to. So we're not talking about, again, accommodating the gospel in the sense of making it easier. We're talking about tailoring it, uh, keeping in mind the people, the, the the persons, the individuals, or the groups, or the society in which I'm living. So the so this is actually the challenge that Paul gives us here. Uh, in the light of these four uh, cultural connotations or characteristics, the gospel must be sensitive to the situation. Is it not our society a society in which God is denied? He's removed. He's marginalized. He's actually taken away from the picture completely. What kind of gospel should we preach, therefore? A God-centered gospel. A gospel that will, again, (laughs) bring God at the very center. That's where He belongs anyway. There's never, there's never a true message of the gospel unless God is at the center of that gospel. Not our needs, primarily. But the being of God, the glory of God, the, the, the rights of the living God. And so, and immediately, you see, we even speak this word, we know that we're not really been doing that. If we have any understanding of what's going on theologically in the evangelical world, (laughs) uh, we can see very much that God has been removed. He's been marginalized. 
God has been removed because at the center of a lot of preaching today, there is man and his needs and not God. God is at the margin serving uh, to fulfill the necessities and the needs and the wants and the desires of human beings. So there has been a, uh, God has been decentered. <laughs> While he should always be at the center. All the more so today. Because if we don't do that, then we know the church is being affected by this first characteristic of the society in which we live. So, we've already addressed this, so I'm not going to uh, go beyond that. But let me therefore go come to the second point, which is so important. Idols. Idolatry. I know in certain a certain way we have already addressed this too, but I want to go back to it so that we can pick it up from here and then, you know, proceed on. Uh, all the more, our society today is full of idols. So, in the light of this, I not only should understand what these idols are, and uh, then. Consider how they may be affecting me, my marriage, my family, my church, and our churches. Then, as I think of how to relate to this world, how to uh, transmit the gospel effectively, I should think, what is the best way in which the gospel can be preached in the light of this idol-filled society? Well, I think the answer is, is quite evident. The, the, the gospel should be used to attack the idols and to unmask their real nature, to expose their nothingness. As the Bible constantly says, the idol is, is air, the idol is vanity, the idol is nothing in itself. It is a, a human construction uh, that serves to the purpose of hiding God from the view of man, so that man can continue to um, do what he does and live how he lives. Um, because Paul says God has exchanged the truth for a lie, <laughs> he's removed God and put in his place the idols, we should do the very opposite. <laughs> We should tear down the idol, tear it down, not by violence, but by the gospel, <laughs> by the gospel, by preaching the truth of the word of God in such a way as to expose the idol for what it is. Um, because the idol is the very thing that the sinner is hiding behind. <laughs> He's hiding behind the idol so that he, 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 so that he can escape this confrontation with God. But if we tear the idol down, then he's going to be faced with the living God. And so he's going to be, he's going to have to face that. At least that's what we need to be doing. Um, before we, we go on, even in this way, let me, uh, rephrase a few things. 
Uh, idols have always been, therefore, central. Central. The idols, these images, were not at the margin of pagan society. They never were. They were always at the center, at the heart. Go to Rome. What's the heart of ancient Rome? The Roman Forum. The Senate was there. But you know what's more prevalent in the Roman Forum? The, the temples of all the idols that the Romans used to worship. I mean, they're all there. They're all there. Some of the columns are still standing. There's a, an, an amazing concentration of idol, uh, idolatry temples in the Forum of Rome. Now, many people don't think of this at all. They go there, they watch the columns, and they say, how beautiful. But what does it mean? It means that idolatry, the worship of idols, has always been at the heart of these godless civilizations that man has built. And so, when we talk about battling with the idols... Spiritually, the spiritual warfare or the preaching of the gospel, we're talking about, you know, tackling the very heart of the problem. The very heart of the problem. So, idols have, they used to, and they still do, control. <laughs> uh, the basic worldview of all these cultures, they've always done it. They did it in the times of Paul. Look, uh, you know, Acts 17. So religious. Idols everywhere. See, the, 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 the idols, because it serves to remove God, he has a strategic function to that allows man to build a godless life. If You, you cannot do that w without the idol. You need the idol because if you don't, you always be confronted by the reality of God. So you need something to take its place. And after that, then the way is open to build your life exactly the way you want it. There is, there is, that is why uh, God's prophets throughout the Old Testament spoke of idols. How many times? Thousands. I mean, you read Isaiah, you read Jeremiah, you read Ezekiel, you read Daniel... That's what they're talking about. Even if we go to Jeremiah chapter 2, it's one of the scriptures that I love the most because of the, of the lovingness of, of how God addresses His people here. God will, in the book of Jeremiah, will highlight so many different sorts of sins that Israel was committing. And yet when he came to define the central issue, verse 13 and 14, they highlight that. My people have committed two evils. Of all the evils, these are the two primary ones. They have forsaken me. You see that? The fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. <coughs> What are the cisterns? The idols. They have forsaken me and they have replaced me with broken cisterns. I am the fountain of living waters, but they prefer drink 
the you know the stagnant water of the cisterns instead of my living water because they want their idols they want to live their lifestyles so you see when it came down to it god he, he always talked about this you've forsaken me you've denied me you've abandoned me and you are, have been worshipping these idols. This is constantly his refrain. Why? Because God knows that idolatry is a central issue. As he is the central issue. What do we live for? What do we put in the place of God? If not him, for whom are you living? For what are you living? And whatever we're living for, that it's not God, that's our idol. Or one of our main idols. So uh, uh, the question of idols and idolatry is central through all the message of Scripture. And our gospel should be used. The mighty, amazing, marvelous truth of the gospel should be used centrally to show the, the fakeness, the vanity, the falsity. Uh, of idols. Let us go a little deeper. Um, Satan has gotten clever through the centuries. When we examine the systems of idolatry of old, they are a lot more simple than they are now. You know, they have their totems and they have their uh, wood-made images. And uh, still, th there was thought behind it. There was evil thought. Because Paul says in Romans 1, if we go back to it, uh, Romans 1, that statement that Paul makes in verse 21, 22, uh, they did not glorify God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were was darkened. See, their thoughts, they began to elaborate. They deny God, so now they have to build something else in its place. There is a thought process in that. They use their thinking to build the idols they need to hide God, so that they would not face Him. But, what we're saying is that through the centuries, Satan has gotten clever. As the battle has become more tough, <laughs> because he's pursuing his project, and the battle has been, has been getting tough. So, in what way? Uh, how, how are uh, idols different, if they are, from the, the ancient type of idolatry? Um, well, I think they have become more ideological, more philosophical, more political. Uh, there's always been an ideology, false religion, that has conducted uh, the civilizations of men. But, but you know, the place that ideology, uh, ideologies, and philosophies, and and, and politics has been has been having in our in our modern society is really unprecedented. I mean the arguments, the sophisticated, I mean the sophisticated arguments they come up with. And then another aspect is that you see they they try to 
when you talk about science and philosophy and ideology and politics and uh, or, or socially applied politics, they, they they try to bring all these you know all these together to create a consensus. So <laughs> that even though all, a lot of these are in conflict with one another, there's all sorts of political ideas out there. But in one thing they agree. No God. There's a lot of ideologies out there. But in one thing they agree. No God. In one way or another. He's denied. Uh, what about science? What about history? Isn't it true. That man has been, has been you know, pursuing this. Um, we would say. You know, total knowledge. A total view of the world that is built on the presupposition that God does not exist. Therefore, they try to explain everything without God. Even archaeology. Yes, indeed. Even when they find a little bone, you know, that may be 10,000 years old, they say it's 5 million years old. And they, they reinterpret everything because they want to make an, uh, an entire culture in which every discipline, every academic field of study, they may disagree with them, uh, you know, between one another, but they at least have to agree with this. No God. And this is the difficulty, you see, that the present generation faces especially. Because every time, when they go to school, when they hear the TV, the, the world speaks with one voice here. So that it creates a situation to where if you dare to say, I don't agree, you say, what? What? You don't agree. Everybody's been saying that. Everybody says this. Everybody agrees. All the sciences are, si are saying this. So it must be true. Of course, they don't bring out how many times science uh, <laughs> was in agreement with certain facts. That there were no facts at all. I mean, history is full of this. History is full of this. A lot of racism <laughs> was built on pseudoscience. <laughs> when they measured how long the noses, how large the noses, that was all based on what? On evolutionistic uh, presupposition that we derive from monkeys. And therefore, even today, there are more people that still look more like monkeys than, than monkeys are human beings. And then if you read the, the science books of the late 1800s or the early 1900s, you will find that all over the place. And that's what we published with the book From Darwin to Hitler, you see. Uh, so, because science speaks with one voice, seemingly, <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that it's true. It doesn't mean that it's true. But they create this total or totalitarian consensus that creates what? Well, it creates a system by which people's minds are brainwashed. Because from the time they're birth, they're born to the time they grow up, they live in this environment and they naturally become part of it. Because they don't have or won't read this, which is the only antidote to be able to think differently and to really see things through for what they are.
Apart from the Bible, there's no hope. There's no hope. And of course, some important words here are cultural pressure and fear. Because if you do not speak politically correct, then you're going to be antagonized. You're going to be pushed to the margin. You're going to be ridiculed. You may even be persecuted. You may even be killed. So this total environment, anti-God environment, uh, is what creates the consensus through this, this sort of means. And let me point out one fact here. Um, do you know, I'm sure you know this fact, that it actually has been a kind of recent um, study. It was published the 28th of October, 2019. So just a few days ago. Uh, 70% of what they call the millennials would vote for a socialist candidate for the next election. 70% of American young people love socialism, thinks socialism is the best thing. How can it be? Well, I think it's very evident if we read about the history of American school system and universities, we see that as America has secularized, especially the academia world, Christian professors and teachers tended to, to leave the academia and build Christian institutions where our children can go and have a Christian education, which is wonderful and fine. But by abandoning the public system of the schools, they, we have left it <laughs> in the hands of the world. So that today... Uh, I, I think the, the, the most of the professors that are teaching in, in, in public schools in America will be of that kind of political mindset. So automatically, when you have the minds of the children at your disposal as influ as in, um, uh, influenzabili, uh, in, influ uh, the, uh how easily the minds of children can be influenced, they have, an, they have an easy time to produce that sort of a generation. So again, that's, that means that if we continue this way, the children that this millennial generation will have will be brought up with that kind of ideological and political view because they will hear it in their home and then they will hear it at home. And as the older generations die, die out, then America will naturally turn into a socialist country. If we do not return to the academia, to the public schools, if we do not accept the challenge and re return to be an influence in this environment, which is difficult. I, I've always pictured this way, you know. I've always felt like we, we, we labored in the front line of, of things. <laughs> when we, we had homeschooling in our, with our kids because uh, when we visited the schools, it was already very disgusting what they were doing back then, you know, in the early 90s. Uh, 
But there is no Christian institutions in Italy. No Protestant evangelical institutions so you do, where you can send your children. Not even a daycare. So that, that was for us a tremendous challenge. And yet, I'm afraid that perhaps there are too many Christian institutions in America. So that the public system has been emptied of the Christian presence which is the only thing that can be of an influence to the generation today. So there is a, a spiritual battle, a tremendous spiritual battle. Uh, and the thing is this, if we do not attack these ideological idols... And if we do not attack them with the gospel, <laughs> we will fail. So the answer to, let's say, political liberalism is not necessarily Republican conservatism. From our point of view as Christians, it must be the gospel. The gospel preached. <laughs> the gospel lived. Of course, conservative you know, politicians are better. <laughs> but uh, there are many Republicans who are not Christians at all. Uh, so, what we need to do, in light of what Paul says, to be able to break up this system that is controlling the minds of millions. And we can try to, to convert, <laughs> quote-unquote, or convert a person here and there, uh, you know, a struggler here and there, but if we let the whole system of thought, this godless system of thought, dominate the culture, we'll be submerged, as we are being submerged. And we are being submerged because we've not been doing what the Bible does always. Uh, attack the idols with the gospel to show their emptiness, their falsity. Uh, are they... Uh, a totem-like figure, you can do that. You've got, you got a piece of tree. You cut part of it and use it for fire. And then you're going to use it to make an idol and call it God? You know how foolish that is. How false that is. That's simple to say. But the great challenge today is that they have built this very complicated and seemingly legitimate system of thought based on false science or false philosophies that are much more complicated. And so the battle is raging high and there are few men today that are working in this way. A lot are doing you know, a political battle, being for Trump instead of being for the Clinton. Okay, but we must go beyond that. <laughs> we must go beyond that. There, if we really want to destroy these idols, these ideological idols, we must do it through the gospel. To preach the gospel, to speak the gospel, to communi communicate the gospel, to, to write the gospel in a way that will uh, examine the idol and through the truths of scripture, destroy it. Through the truth of the gospel talking with you know Kevin the other day and he told me that you know Pastor McGuire was a great student of false religions or false ideologies because if you know your enemy 
then you better know how to tear it down, to tear down the arguments. Well, that's exactly, that's perfectly right. you got to study your enemy. I just uh, started reading this book, Education the Third Reich. This is how uh, Hitler, uh, uh, you know, uh, built the school system in Germany during the 30s and how he was able to pervert the mind of an entire generation that only five years later was willing to go and conquer the world on the basis of Nazi ideology. How is that possible? Well, we need to study these matters. How else are we going to be able to understand our own time, what they have been doing to millennials, this younger generation? We should feel a tremendous sympathy, a tremendous heartache for these generations that are brought up in blindness in these false and delusive ideologies. But where are the solid books or gospel tracts that will be tailored for today's needs and generation? A lot of literature that we use comes from the 1950 mentalities. We're not living in the 1950s anymore. The world has changed. We need to be able to produce literature that will take cognizance of what is taking place today. What are the needs today? How people think today? Where are they at today? Study their idols and then try to tailor the message preached, spoken, or written in a way they will make as much sense as possible considering the human mind and the human conscience as it lives before God. Always answerable to God. Um, Let me quickly move on. Um, In verse 24 it says, uh, as we step into the third aspect... Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the, the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. See, now Paul steps into this, the first stage of this abandonment of God. And so the... the uh, immoral corruption that begins to take place. And notice that he, uh, for some reason, and there is a reason here, uh, he he highlights the uh, sexual field has been one that is very, uh, very indicative of where society is going. Where a society gets to the point where it will even abandon those who Paul calls the natural instincts of man and even those very 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 basic (laughs) these natural instincts are even those perverted so that while man should desire well a man should desire a woman by principle now men desire men and women desire women Paul says that the homosexual problem is not any problem it is a very indicative problem of, of how low, uh, morally speaking, the human being is becoming and is turning. So, we should ask ourselves the question, 
Is the church been affected by this? Paul says that his in his own time they were justifying homosexuality in every in every way. How has the church been fair with this regard? Has the church become uh, accept, accepting of these alternative lifestyles, alternative marriages, or cohabitations? We would say yes, indeed. The church has become very affected by it. Which is another sign to say that what Paul is saying here is perfectly right. (laughs) These that are the major characteristics of the society in which we live, the secular, godless, immoral society, will tend to affect the church. And the church will tend to compromise in these areas, these very areas. So we need to be mindful of this and we must put on a resistance, <laughs> a resistance, uh, an opposition to these um, new alternative things that are now become dominating, dominating in our culture. Uh, and of course, if we, if we read on, Paul will go back to this point in verse 26 and 27. And then he will again, uh, in verse 28, highlight the uh, destructive nature of all the evil as men and women begin to turn against one another in all sorts of evil ways because God has abandoned human beings to their lust. Let me just make a point of that that is so very clear. When in verse 24, 26, and 28... Paul, Paul writes that God, because man rejects God and replaces him with vile idols, God begins to withdraw, or rather, God begins to abandon men and women to what they naturally desire as being evil. It means this. It means this, that God had been the whole time <laughs> restraining these evils in the lives, in the, in, the, in the spirits, in the souls of human beings. But the Bible says that the heart of man is completely rotten, <laughs> desperately wicked. So you say, why are people not more wicked than they are? If evil has penetrated every faculty of the human nature, the... Uh, the older theologians used to call it total depravity. Well, if man is totally depraved in his own nature, why is in his, his outward life not totally you know, depraved? So that people can be unsaved and yet you know, courteous and kind. and uh, Because God has been restraining the evil that is... That is can now bring out what they have inside. Which means that the will of man is not free. This is very evident here. The will of man is not free. Man's will is bound. It's bound. And if man does any good, it's because God restrains the evil that will completely take over if he would not restrain it. See? So the more you see men and women expressing what they naturally want and desire, 
That means that God is abandoning them. And we're, we're, we're going down, we're going down, we're going down. As we think of this, uh, what are the implications for us as to what we are to be and what we are to do? And of course, the question is, all of this uh, unrestrained immorality, a lot of evil things that were once condemned even 40 years ago, or even less than that, even in my own time in the 1980s or the 1990s, now are just everywhere. Uh, not to let I think of the 1950s or 40s or 30s. Uh, the, 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 the more you go back, the, the, the more restrained was so, uh, evil in, in society. But now everything is just coming out in the open. Uh, well, we should think, how is that affecting us? First of all, this is the environment in which we live and move every day. Individually, <coughs> marriage-wise, family-wise, church-wise, churches-wise. Is this affecting the church? Is this affecting me? What, how high is my moral, are my moral standards? <laughs> Am I living close to Christ so that I may receive the, the strength to want to be holy, to want to be pure? Or am I let go and becoming uh, used to the things that are around me so that they are now penetrating me and influencing me? What about my spouse? What about my children? What about the people in the church? Uh, so, as we do not have much time, I'll try to condense uh, more simply what I wanted to say. Uh, one thing has become true is that the moral fiber of Christians um, is has been diminishing. I can see that if I uh, if I can speak honestly, I can see that among pastors, uh, the older type of pastors, to me it seemed like they're kind of disappearing. I'm talking about people's pastors. Those that sought you out. Those that cared. <laughs> Those that came after you, <laughs> those that really spent their life loving God's people, not only preaching from the pulpit, but loving God's people. Uh, these, just like the old school teachers or the old timey doctors, all that generation is passing away. We have a lot of administrators today, uh, a lot of perhaps good pulpiteers, you know. Uh, in many ways, preaching is not the hardest thing to do. And it is essential, fundamental, essential, but it's not. it may not be the hardest thing to do in that pastoral life. And we'll get there in a minute. But uh, the moral fibers of Christians is, is really diminishing. And uh, we can see that in the sexual realm. And we have already addressed that. Uh, we should have very high standards because that's a very sensitive issue and especially men you know exactly what I'm talking about uh, but also women that can be subjected to the same temptations but there's a very that's, that's an area that Paul emphasize, uh, emphasizes here 
and we should be very mindful for uh, it is not all that difficult to fall if we let go of certain uh, principles in our life you know temptations are everywhere uh, even if you use the computer already there's a temptation there already there women offer themselves for a few dollars you're not looking for them but it pops up so we're living in tremendous time uh, that is really, really difficult. And so, uh, I just want to try to put it this way. <laughs> we should have a, a strong, committed lives to the Lord individually. To where we will seek the Lord personally, intimately. Opening our very bosoms to Him every day. To have that intimate, deep, even passionate relationship with God. So that He will hear our cries. He will count our tears. But He will also hear our praises as we, as we live before Him. We should have strong marriages. We should have strong marriages. Uh, uh, and let me say something here since we're among you know, adults. <laughs> uh, the Bible is very clear about, uh, you know, uh, fornication and adultery. And, uh, you know, the sexual uh, fulfillment is, must be within marriage. But within marriage must be fulfilled. And that's an area where at times women can be a little withdrawn and not... Uh, very affectionate, uh, and that is bound to hurt the marriage. And that can create a situation to where a man feels constantly unfulfilled, and that, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, that will increase the level of temptation for him. So as the Bible is strong about, you know, this uh, within marriage sexuality, must be restrained. Yet, within marriage, it must abound. It must be strong. And it must be strong as possible to the very last. Uh, we should not lose that sentimental, you know, physical relationship with our spouse. It may grow dimmer through the years, uh, naturally so, but it should be there. That is an important aspect in this battle. They should not be um, underestimated. Underestimated. And we should have also strong families. Strong families. Strong relationship with our children. Where God is at the center of our family life. Where we will gather with our children on the couch to read the scriptures, to talk to them, to pray with them, to read stories of missionaries, or as they grow up, you know, talk about things and, and have that open relationship where our children will feel loved and cared and also free to express their ideas and their sentiments. Uh, well, what I'm, I'm saying this because <coughs> consider the thing that we have highlighted in verse 28 and 29 or, or even 30 or even 31 this self-destructive or this destructive 
lifestyles. See, man feels that he can be free to do whatever he wants to, like there were no consequences. But consequences there are. Because evil does evil. Evil destroys. Evil destroys. Destroys marriages. Destroys relationship between parents and children. Destroys society. What's the best antidote that we can counteract with this very gloomy and sad picture the world is offering us today? Well, you know, marriages and families and churches that are free of this type of thing, that are wholesome, uh, that are functional and not dysfunctional, <laughs> that are good and not bad. Because ultimately, you see, that is a testimony. When they can see that man and woman, they, can, they still hold their hands when they walk. They still pray together. They still hug each other. They still love each other. Uh, and when they see that parent or that father that embraces his son, no matter how tall he is, still loves him and gives his heart and there's their intensity, then the world cannot help but see. And you look at the world, everything is collapsing. When the, the Christian marriages and families and churches should be the very opposite of that. Without that, we can preach the gospel clearly, as clearly as we can, theologically, socially, culturally, but it will not do any good. Because Christ must be seen in our life, in our wholesome relationship, where life abounds, love abounds, purity abounds. We need that, and I'm afraid we don't have that. I will close with two more observations. I'll bear with me just a minute. Let me take you to Ezekiel 34 very quickly. Uh, Ezekiel 34. Another thing that is needed is strong, strong, committed pastors. Uh, of course, <laughs> we can say uh, there must be theologically uh, orthodox, biblical. That's a given. That's Without that, we don't go anywhere. <laughs> but according to God's view of a pastor, a pastor should be something like this. This is a, a text that has come back to me time and time and time after time. Uh, this is a text where God accuses the shepherds of Israel of not having done what they were to do. They did the very opposite. Look at verse 4. Actually, verse 3 too. You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wood, with, with the wool. You slaughter the, the fatlings, but do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost. But with force and cruelty you have ruled them. You see, that's God's idea of a pastor. <laughs> uh, a pastor must feed the flock. He must be a preacher. He must be a teacher. He can teach Sunday school. He can teach in the Sunday morning, Sunday evening, on Wednesday, all day long. 
But that's only half of his responsibility. Because a pastor tends the sheep. He cares for the sheep individually. And God distinguishes here. There, mu- there, must be, there can be a sheep that is weak. And so the pastor must go and strengthen that. There, can, the, the, there may be a sheep that is uh, sick. And that must be healed. There can be a sheep that is broken. Uh, so that it must be bound up. There may be sheep. There may be a sheep that is uh, driven away. Has been driven away, perhaps by scandals, perhaps by an offense, perhaps who knows what. But it must be brought back. And if a sheep is lost, it must be sought. <laughs> because actually, a pastor must be in the image of Christ, must be a representative of Christ. How is it that God seeks? He seeks through us. (laughs) His greatest means that he has, it's us. Human beings, persons, living persons. He he will not speak the gospel through animals, no through monkeys, no through UFOs. He will speak the gospel, communicate the gospel with words and lives through his redeemed people. And a pastor, this is his way very heavy on me through the years. He must be of all people in this community, the one that is more Christ-like. More Christ-like. That's, that's the standard. And he must have a heart for people. And, and I would say especially today. So a pastor must know how to strengthen, how to heal, how to bound up, how to... A bring back how to seek. And when you consider all the maladies and all the brokenness there is today, all the in- situations that sometimes cannot be fathomed, they are so devastating. Uh, 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 that's what a pastor must be. He must be a student of God and a student of the human being. All these maladies, all this evil, and also the grace of God, how it works to, to you know, redeem. We published a book recently in Italy. Uh, it's, it's entitled Pride. It's nature, uh, manifestations, consequences, and uh, oh my, the last word. Um, how, how to how to heal it or how to um, its remedies? Okay, its remedies. So um, that book is actually an excerpt from Richard Baxter's The Christian Directory, which is a double-column, small print volume of a thousand pages. And it's actually an encyclopedia of spiritual maladies. As Richard Baxter was one of the greatest pastors in history, he would go and visit his people. Not only limit his ministry from the pulpit, but actually go to the people and try to help him like a father, like a son, uh, or like a brother, the people of the congregation. Each and every one. Each and every one. 
uh, and as he did that, he, he made annotations, and, and then he wrote this marvelous you know, book of complicated cases <laughs> of moral deficiencies, which is a tremendous thing. They don't write books like that anymore. They don't write books like that. And actually, we just learned that it's among the ten most sold books today in, in, in Christian bookstores in Italy. So, Richard Baxter is speaking again. <laughs> Um, so I'm emphasizing this because look at the society that we have just look at uh, Paul 1 verse 28, 29, 30, 31 study I mean consider all of these different sorts of issues uh, of evils Uh, I'm talking about of course uh, verse 29, unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, envy, murder, strife, deceit, and all of those things. What do you do? You know, a pastor must study each and every one of these maladies, just like a doctor, and know how to help himself (laughs) and then help others, which is not easy to do. if pastors do not recoup this aspect of the ministry, which is very, very much abandoned today, the church can never prosper. Because society today is full of broken people. Broken in every way. I think, from my experience, for example, most women have had some sort of abuse growing up, of some sort. And these things do have an effect you know, and their life. But consider the, the divorces and the separations and the uh, abuses that have taken place, people that are broken, people that are desperate, people that are enslaved of, of evils. I, I still remember the time that I visited this family in Italy and I, I called Cherie on the phone right after. <clears throat> I visited this family. This, this woman had come to our, our church and uh, so I went to, to see her and uh, their parents. She was 42 years old and still living with her parents. Um, the father knew my father. He was a communist. So they were you know, together in the party. And I love to talk to communists. <laughs> I love to talk to communists. It seems like I have a, a spot for them because of my, my, my father's uh, history. Uh, but, he, you know... He was talking about his communism, and but uh, and I, we, we talked about the gospel too. But when I left, I went downstairs. His wife followed me, and and in a five minutes time, unloaded on me the most tragic story I've ever heard of her being sexually uh, not only molested but violated, uh, raped when she was nine years of age and and she was actually raped by her brother and and then uh, as they got married with her spouse and they had uh, two children a girl and a boy they attended all these communist rallies you know and and they would leave their children with this man and he raped their daughter for two years straight from the years of seven to the years of nine 
And she, the girl, kept all this within herself and never brought it out until she was 19 years old. But by then, she already had been in all sorts of drugs and, uh, um, and she never, you know, regained, uh, you know, <laughs> a sanity of, of mind in a certain sense. Um, and their, uh, their son, their son, was raped when he was 15 years old by another man. And uh, I think that he, he killed himself, if I remember you know, correctly. And then she left me with that. And I called Sheree and I said, uh, I'm coming home and I just wanted to say this is what I, I heard. And, and I said, you know, how, how can you help somebody like that on a human level? And yet, and yet we know that there is hope. But today the world abounds just because as sin becomes more rampant in society, the devastations will increase. The people that are raped, that are violated, that are abused, that are broken in every way are millions. And a pastor that will not try to be like Ezekiel 34 is of no use. You have to be someone who is willing to face that. To go, to visit, to hear, to weep, to pray, to help, to counsel, day and night, day and night. To be spent just like the Lord was spent for us. And He will still spend His eternal energies <laughs> to save men and women like us. Uh, Perhaps we'll have another opportunity, I'm not sure, uh, on next Wednesday. But if we do, there are probably more issues to think about. But let me just close by reminding you of prayer. Prayer. Uh, perhaps if you want to this evening or later on in the week, you can read Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64 is a tremendous passage. You know, no one is seeking God. Evil is uh, spreading everywhere like a flood. And the, the prophet cries out, Oh, rent the heavens and come down among us. Because we can do all that we talked about. But if we don't pray, again, that will be a death blow to any ministry, to any church activity. Because ultimately, we can't make things grow. We cannot even make ourselves grow. Only God can make our, us and others grow. Even the gospel that is planted as a seed. So prayer at the end, at the beginning, in the midst, at the end, m must be the, the element in which every activity is bathed, is plunged. We want to do this, Lord. Oh, God, help us. Uh, so... Prayer must be central. It must be strong. So that we can apply ourselves and be active. Not active to be active, but thinking critically about the times in which we live and how the gospel should be tailored uh, and lived out by us in a way that will be coherent with what we say as much as grace will allow us to, to do through, through our years. And then pray. And then pray that God will intervene. Um, I am convinced I 
we are Christians, therefore there may be some things in the Republican outlook that we may not agree. <laughs> and obviously there are things even in today's president that we may not agree. Language, you know, behavior, you know, morality. Uh, but you know, uh, still I can see the hand of God uh, in causing him, in raising him up. And uh, um, and that is a sign of grace. That is a sign of grace. Uh, because these basic policies are just against this one world government direction and a lot of different moral issues as well. And we must be grateful for that. And I believe, I don't, cannot say as strongly, I love this country. It's not my country, but I love this country. Um, we, need, we need to pray for your president. I'm amazed that he's not dead yet. Because I think he's battling against the greatest forces that this world can put together to destroy anybody. Uh, he may be a little rough around the edges, but you know, Luther too was. He wasn't that gentleman that we may imagine. Luther was rough. But they needed a rough man at that time because they were battling against the monster of Roman Catholic Church and the Inquisition. And you do not need uh, weak men. I don't want to use an, another word. Uh, we need men that will have that passion. And, and I'm sure that God has, has raised him up to restrain once again the taking on of this perhaps last civilization. May God postpone it. And yet we say at the same time, and in a sort of a paradox, come Lord Jesus. <laughs> Amen.